You've never been to City Ballet? Or any ballet? No problem. I've got you. And even if you do occasionally drop your backside into the plush red velvet seats at the David H. Koch Theater at Lincoln Center, there are a few things you may not know. Brace yourselves. Welcome to In Their Voice, an audiobook club podcast from Chirp dedicated to the most profound human stories, narrated by the people who live them. I'm Caleb Gotthart, an editor at Chirp Books, and I'm joined by my colleague and fellow editor, Meredith Peterson. Every month, we're picking an audiobook memoir that highlights a remarkable life and discussing what spoke to us, what challenged us, and what inspired us. If you, like us, love to listen to stories from remarkable people telling their life stories, especially when we get to hear that story in their own voice, we'd love to have you join us. So here's how it works. First, visit chirpbooks.com slash in their voice, where you'll see a chance to follow our book club. If you click that follow button, you'll be signed up to receive monthly email updates at the beginning of the month to learn what memoir Meredith and I are reading and why we're excited about it. All you have to do is listen along with us and stay tuned for a new podcast episode wherever you found us at the end of each month, where we'll be having an in-depth discussion of our pick. This month, we're discussing Swan Dive, The Making of a Rogue Ballerina by Georgina Paskogan. So this month, we are we're going to the ballet with Swan Dive. And I'm curious, Meredith, what your experience, if any, is like with the world of ballet, whether in performance or attendance? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I've been a ballerina my whole life, so um, no, just kidding. Oh um, <laughs> I'm not a dancer. Uh, honestly, I think like beyond having a very nice memory of my mom taking me to see a local production of The Nutcracker when I was super little, I don't have any m- memories of seeing ballet live. Um, I think that like as a kid, I, I feel like we talked about this when we talked about an astronaut's guide to life on earth as like, I feel like ballerina yep. is like a core childhood career. <laughs> it's like one of the most popular career paths for the four and five year olds. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was like, not really on that train. I think I had like a little picture book about young ballerinas that I remember really liking it and like being drawn to the aesthetics, but not so much that I ever actually wanted to be a ballerina or like asked my parents, like, please sign me up for dance lessons. Um, where I actually think that there's kind of a cultural fascination with ballet. Like there's way more media about ballet dancers than I can think of than about like ballroom dancers or like jazz dancers. Um, (laughs) And I also think that like ballet representation almost transcends interest in like watching actual live ballet. Like I've seen ballet like maybe once or twice live, Um, but I have consumed like a, a pretty solid amount of like fictional media about it. Um, And I think even a lot of media that takes on this sort of dark tone where, I don't know, I just think there's like, I was like thinking about this and I was like, 
why is there so much like psychological suspense and like horror about this sport or this art form? Like obviously there's black swan. That's like iconic. You know, that's like, I feel like the number one thing you're going to think of. Um, but then you have like Suspiria. Um, I feel like the new Megan Abbott book, she's like the queen Mm. of looking at like feminized athletics through like a, like really like twisted lens. Um, her latest novel is set at a ballet school and I'm just like, what is it about ballet specifically that engenders this kind of like psychological terror? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. Like it's, it's pers- so present yeah. in, uh, yeah, like you said, almost every fictional depiction of ballet, elite ballet. And, but it's rarely, I feel like the performances that are highlighted, but the behind the scenes, the right. rehearsals, the obsession with perfection, um, in every sense of that word. And like you said, it, it is, for whatever reason, in our cultural imagination, uh, ripe for psychological exploration. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that's probably a whole podcast episode, like, in and of itself. Like, you have this, like, the perception of it as being, like, really cutthroat and, like, highly selective. This idea that you're, like, working really closely and, like, intimately alongside someone that you're competing with. Like... There's probably also like a body horror angle, um, but yeah. I we'll we'll work on the screenplay and get that pitched uh, out here shortly. But uh, I totally agree with what you're saying around our fictional depictions of ballet, and looking at this memoir, which is not a fictional depiction of the cultural. Uh, understanding of ballet, but very much seems to confirm almost all of our suspicions. Mm -hmm. Um, What did you think of Swan Dive and Georgina's life story? Yeah. Um, I think this was a really interesting lesson, especially coming at it from this outside perspective um, with like very little prior knowledge of like what actually is happening in the ballet world beyond just like stuff I've cobbled together from, from pop culture. Um, and I also didn't like have any knowledge of like Georgina herself or like of NYCB specifically. Um, and I think there was something happening in this memoir, a kind of like a back and forth between breadth and depth where I'm not sure if the balance was struck in a way that felt 100% satisfying to me as like a non-ballet person. Um, Mm. I think if you have like a closer relationship to ballet or came into this as like a big fan of Georgina's work, you might feel differently. But I sometimes felt like there was this almost unevenness where she would go into really minute detail about something that I didn't actually find particularly compelling. Um, but then she would gloss over the details of something that I actually wanted to hear more about. Um, like there were a lot of these like semi humorous anecdotes, like an anecdote about her, like falling off a bar stool, an anecdote about like a wig falling off during a performance, like sort of this like misadventures in ballet tone that I think might be a lot more appealing to like a true ballet fan. Um, so you're getting all these like little puzzle pieces of her day to day, but in a way that felt kind of like staccato and cobbled together to me. And I feel like I could have done with less, with like a less broad and like more focused account with like more space for insight into some of the heavier stuff, because she definitely gets into like a ton of really heavy subject matter. Like I I know we'll, 
get into this more in this conversation, but she spends a lot of time talking about like body image and her own body dysmorphia mm-hmm. and like her experiences with dis- disordered eating. And she has like a ton of insight into how that happens on a personal level. But at the same time, she doesn't always interrogate like the culture that allowed it and even encouraged it, which I think would have been more interesting to me as like a more casual ballet. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. I, I understand what you're saying. I think, there are many times where the tone balance is balancing some pretty intense and um, complicated realities about a culture around this art form, essentially. And that's also coupled with Georgina's own distinct personality, which is, you know, she is the rogue ballerina. Uh, she is um, not an outsider necessarily, but she is someone that is carving her own path within what is now I understand is a pretty uh, narrow path towards uh, elite ballet success, not only in your capability, but your physical appearance, um, your de- dedication to uh, the company. It is one of, I think going back to our question around ballet being this really interesting cultural touchstone um, for us as a society where it seems to demand so much of us. And I think we as people, especially outsiders to the world of ballet, look inward at someone's complete dedication to this particular form of dance and are mesmerized and fascinated and potentially even a little disturbed by it. I think another, I think that that like rogue ballerina persona is like a really notable piece of this listening experience like she's kind of like an anti-ballerina in a sense and I think that Mm. some of that has to do with the the way that she has been interpreted by the ballet world like on an identity level like that she's the first female Asian American soloist at her company she doesn't necessarily look like the majority of her peer of her peers like her body type doesn't necessarily align with theirs um she's like up against a lot of racism in a way where like even combating the racism and like standing up for herself could potentially like other her even more um but I also think that there's like a really strong component of that like rogue ballerina thing is just like her personality um Mm -hmm where she's kind of at odds with this idea of a ballerina being this like graceful, polished, like not that she isn't those things in her work as a dancer, but I think she's cultivating an air of like almost like manic pixie ballet girl where she's like, (laughs) she's loud and she like curses and she like speaks her mind and she can be kind of accident prone. Like toward the end, the beginning of the book, she talks about like doing a summer program and meeting all these girls for the first time with like these perfect ballerina buns and being like, how did you guys get your hair to do that? Like she, mm-hmm. she seems like the type of person who would describe herself like as a hot mess or something like that's like kind of her vibe. <laughs> and I think that a big part of this book is like her kind of conveying that she doesn't quite fit in. And like, sometimes that's in a way that's like really fraught and like professionally detrimental, but sometimes it's in a way that's actually just sort of like, fun and refreshing and like really contributes to giving us a sense of who she is as a person. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. She, in an interview talks about how this book is for anyone who's ever felt othered in their space. Mm -hmm. And I think Georgina would definitely describe ballet as her space from the youngest age found something that she could express in this art form that nothing in her life has ever compared to. But then some of the other givens of ballet culture she has questioned throughout her career 
and asked, why is this a given, you know, particularly around race, around mm-hmm. body image and uh, even what is acceptable to present as an image to the world as a ballerina. Um, and so I think it was maybe even part of the challenge of listening at points to the book is that you're going in with your expectations of what a ballerina is. And at many and throughout the book, Georgina is causing you to question that image. Mm-hmm. Um, yet at the same time, affirming a lot of what you may suspect about ballet culture. I think the New York times said, Swan Dive gives voice to every suspicion you may harbor about professional ballet, <laughs> which is a very succinct way yeah, of saying yeah. something that I think was, was definitely my take uh, listening to the book. It was clear that the intensity of the School of American Ballet matched my intensity. And this was weirdly comforting. It turned out that Tyler, Miranda, and I weren't the only little freaks who put ballet on a pedestal. The School of American Ballet had an entire factory of young hopefuls who felt the exact same way. There was no question. Nothing was taken more seriously here than ballet. I looked at the girls around me, and while I didn't easily fit in with them, I knew that we shared one common bond. None of us viewed ballet as an after-school hobby. Ballet came first for all of us. I was buzzing all over with a warm feeling. I was in a place where people could provide me with a direct path to a career as a ballerina, and I was starting to suspect this might be what I wanted. It's funny, we were talking up top about how ballerina is on the four to five year old career path alongside astronaut (laughs) and maybe other professional athletes and the same is true here in this book i promise i'm not we're not choosing these books just because (laughs) everyone knows what they want to do at age four so i think four to seven year olds are actually our target demo our target (laughs) yeah exactly so all every four-year-old out there listening right now please if you know what you want to do follow your dreams everyone who is um post 20 years old and didn't get to live out your childhood dreams this isn't a subtle judgment on you just know that um but georgina is on the pro ballet track almost by necessity at a very young age age four is when she's really first dancing ballet and this isn't really considered an early age to be starting ballet i think Mm -hmm. this is when most amateurs and professionals alike would begin to dance in this way yeah like if you're starting at age 10 you're like not gonna make it it's not even worth it hang up (laughs) your shoes that's my message to 10 year olds (laughs) (laughs) not Um, our target demo don't even listen to this podcast (laughs) 10 year olds hate in their voice um but yeah, you kind of have to start at age four, similar to gymnastics, I feel like, or figure yeah. skating. Like, if you're going to do this professionally, it's too late to start even at nine, even at 10. When you look at her journey from what's starting at age four to when she's essentially accepted into NYCB, what stood out to you about that journey? And were there moments that particularly surprised you there? Um. So at this point in our journey, our podcast journey, we have heard from multiple people who like knew what they wanted to do from a very young age um, and who are willing to make a lot of sacrifices to get it. 
So in that sense, this isn't necessarily like a new narrative for us. Um, but I do think that two things really stand out to me about Georgina's childhood. Um, one is that for a while, according to her, she was on this track without even really knowing it or like having mm. a plan. Um, like Chris Hadfield sees the moon landing as a kid and he's like, that's what I, that's it. I'm going to be an astronaut. Like I'm going to go to space. Um, and Alicia Keys like knows she's a star. She's like seven years old. She's playing the piano. She's like, get me on that stage. This is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Um, but Georgina is telling us like multiple times that for a large part of her youth, her relationship to dance was unfolding in this super organic way without mm -hmm. a plan or like a set goal. She's not necessarily thinking about her future. She was like thinking about the here and now and the here and now was that she like loved ballet and she wanted to dance as much as possible. Um, and I think that that contrast is especially interesting when you view it alongside the other big contrast for me, which is that she seems like way, way more acutely aware of the sacrifices that she's making um, than some of the other protagonists that we've had mm. so far. Like in our conversation yeah. about an astronaut's guide to life on Earth, I remember saying that I felt like Chris Hadfield like made it just seem like almost unnaturally easy to have as much focus as he did and to follow this like really grueling path as like a, a preteen um, and I was wondering if that was like actually the case, like, was it actually that simple? Um, you know, did he struggle with wanting more of a social life with wanting more freedom? And I think Georgina, like in contrast, 100%, like she knows what she's giving up. Like she's like a little girl who's like losing her summer vacation. She's losing her weekends. That sort of that, like really quintessential childhood feeling of like your days just opening up before you like filled with possibility, like she's yes. not getting that. And in some sense, I think she just was kind of like longing to be a kid, but she just was longing for ballet even more. Like she wants to dance at ballet practice more than she wants to go to the school dance, even though she does want to go to the school dance and like hang out with her friends. And even when her mom is saying like, Hey, why don't we blow off practice and go to the mall? She's like, that sounds really fun. I would love to go to the mall, but like, no thanks. Like I got to stay focused. Yeah. And it almost, this brings out to me another component that is a theme throughout the book, which is the idea of loyalty and a distorted, I think, view of loyalty, which is that mm -hmm. even from a young age, and we see this in uh, Georgina's early experience with NYCB, New York City Ballet, there is a complete um, expectation that you will be loyal to the company first over mm. any else. other consideration. Yeah. There's one anecdote where she talked about having to leave for her brother's wedding because he was uh, going to be deployed. And so it was a one day operation like you, they're going to get married and it was going to be one day off total. And she's worried she'll ever. never she's worried she'll never see him again because he's like getting deployed. Like it's not just my right. brother's wedding, which is super important to me, but it's also like anything could happen to him. Like this could be my last chance to see him. Totally. And her asking for that one day off was a big like moment in her life because of the level of loyalty demanded by the higher ups at NYCB. Mm -hmm. And I think like you're saying, she may have had a lot and she definitely seemed to have a lot of other interests and in wanting to have a somewhat normal childhood and is very curious about the world outside of ballet. But I think almost not due to her own fault, but is indoctrinated into the ballet company's mindset, which seems to be, demand everything that you are and if you're lucky if you get anything as a result of that mm -hmm. but it's the only possible way to 
experience success in this culture is complete dedication and anything less will be essentially punished. Georgina. The low baritone of his voice was unmistakable and the way he pronounced my name always felt heavy like I should listen very carefully to what he said next. His voice always came like a rolling wave of thunder. Imagine being scolded by Zeus and Satan simultaneously. It's that you don't really fit in from here. He pointed to my knee with an unusually long index finger. To there. He said, pointing to what I only could interpret to be my ass. His comment delivered a jolt to my system, and I finally saw with complete clarity what this conversation was really about. It was definitely not about my happiness. It was about my thighs. Oh, damn, Gina. Welcome to your first fat talk. So it's impossible not to read Swan Dive and... I think be disturbed by the level of emotional and physical and even sexual abuse present at the company. Um, and it seems like the world of elite ballet at large. I think there's a lot to be said about holding the perpetrators and predators at these um, companies accountable for their actions. There have been some steps to do that. Um, in Swan Dive, however, we see Georgina wrestling with it under the lens of her own experience in in many different ways from some of her own body dysmorphia, her struggles with an eating disorder, um, even at one point having liposuction on her or a similar type of procedure on her inner thighs. Um, What or how did you encounter Georgina's wrestling with what is uncontroversially a toxic work environment that has been at least historically the NYCB. Yeah. I mean, this was such a huge part of the book. I feel like we could talk about this for like four hours. Um, but to me, I think so much of this memoir felt like a release. Um, and I think it makes complete sense that Georgina would have so much like pent up anger and frustration and sadness, like even trauma because her work environment and the larger culture to which it belongs reads as incredibly toxic and incredibly harmful on practically like every level possible. Like it's sexist, it's racist, it's wildly paternalistic, it's fat phobic, it can be physically violent and sexually abusive. Like it's petty and mean. Like, and a lot of these problems exist in a lot of different workplaces and are ultimately like endemic in society at large. But I do think that the way that they're able to flourish in this specific place um, and in this specific field seems really egregious. Um, Mm, So like she has like a lot of baggage, you know, she has tons of baggage and I think a lot of really negative experiences to work through. And I think she is working through them like in real time in this memoir. Like one thing that really struck me continually, like I really never got over it and I kept being surprised was how candid she is specifically around like naming names. Like a lot of these people that she's talking about, like some of these people are actually like pretty, I would say like big names who are in the newspaper. But I also think that some of these people are not like, they're not necessarily like mega celebrities whose names the average reader is going to like recognize and we're having their identity fully disclosed is actually going to give us additional context and like insight into an interaction. Like some of the 
especially for some of the, I guess, smaller grievances, like knowing who specifically this was or this interaction happened with, like is not really relevant to the reader. Um, So I think that it felt especially pointed that she chose to name the names anyway. And it gave it this edge of like a really personal, like her using these passages as an opportunity to like vent or like get some kind of justice for herself, not just to like speak to a problem in like an informative sense, I guess. Yeah. And this is something that you see play out in even some of the higher profile reviews of the book. Like I mentioned the New York Times review earlier because of these names that are mentioned, there are several instances in that review where, you know, the New York Times journalist is saying, we reached out to so-and-so. They have not read the book and yeah. do not care to comment. And, I, and this is a theme I saw throughout the entirety of the book where, like you said, she's naming names. And there is, a, I think, in that a call for accountability. And I mm-hmm. appreciate that level of candor. But like you're, like you're saying, it, it clearly wasn't just for um, a narrative enhancement because I... Um, have no familiarity with a lot of these people, understandably. Um, She said something um, in the, I keep referencing this New York Times article, but it was a treasure trove. um, (laughs) That uh, Oh, I'm sure the Times specifically, like really this, this is not just like book news for them. This is like local news, you know, like NYCB is like something the New York Times covers. Well, right. And it's re- it was reviewed by their dance editor, um, mm, which makes mm-hmm. sense. And again, this is, I think, um, Elite Ballet has a certain cachet, I think, in certain circles. And I think this memoir ha- obviously has impact outside of just learning about NYCB and Georgina's role within it. She even um, has received like comps to Anthony Bourdain's memoir, Kitchen Confidential. Um, she said, I saw him and... I saw myself in him in a very weird way, how he shook up that world and did it so honestly and coming from a place of love. I love ballet and I love this company and I believe in it 1000%. And which is interesting to hear that motivation because that wouldn't necessarily have been my uh, initial take after listening to Swan Dive is that, wow, Georgina loves NYCB and everything that comes with it. Not that she's saying that in this memoir, but Mm -hmm. I think it's illuminating to see that the reason, and I think part of the motivation for her writing such a scathing uh, send up of ballet culture is because she cares for it and wants it to get better and wants future dancers in her position to experience less of the toxicity and more of the hopefully beauty of the art form. Yeah. I think on the flip side of that though, like I think, I think a huge part of this book is her doing that work to like, deconstruct some like really problematic parts of this culture because she wants it to improve because of how much she cares. But I think there's this other element that honestly really depressed me of like how Mm. normalized a lot of these aspects of this culture seem to be for her. Like despite the fact that she's so aware of some of the problems in the industry, um, I think that really tellingly, even when she doesn't even mean to be criticizing like the institution as a whole, like even when she's just trying to tell a funny anecdote, like the culture still sounds just like unbelievably unwelcoming. And I do think it's, they're just like insidiously good at legitimizing these super harmful ideas. Like fat phobia is already baked into Western medicine, but they've literally got this doctor on call who's like, yeah, 720 calories a day while you're doing like four hours of like grueling exercise, like 
that's what I prescribe to you, like that can kill you. That's like so dangerous. And they have gotten somebody to like use their position as a medical expert to like validate that. I'd be like, this is actually a good idea. Like this is something that I'm saying will like help you. Or like when she's grappling, there's this like horrible, like really heartbreaking line where she's grappling with an eating disorder, I think as like a teen. And she's like, she kind of knows that it's like, something's not right but at the same time she's like if this is a real problem surely one of the numerous adult women around me will say something and pull me aside and be like what's going on with you and nobody does like of course nobody does and it's just so heartbreaking and like they they have you're right like it is it is indoctrination and like they're so good at just like legitimizing these like really really like I'm not blam- like in no way am I blaming her for like not questioning these standards more. I'm more just saying like it's so upsetting like how well this institution like indoctrinated her into into thinking this way. No, absolutely, and I think part of that probably goes back to the dynamic that you are able to demand this much of people at some really young stages before they unfortunately know any better. Like the example you just used, like we're an adult typically in a healthy community environment would say, Hey, FYI, I'm noticing this. Don't worry. Like, you know, offering some adult wisdom to mm-hmm. a child essentially. And the, the people who are supposed to be offering that advice and wisdom in this case are toxic, uh, bosses and yeah. people who have completely unrealistic expectations for what the human body should be, uh, doing at a, at a healthy level. And also, um, what is good for people, not just, uh, right. Right. That's so, that's so huge too, is like, yes. Like what is good for an individual? Like it's all about what is good for the show. Like what is good for ballet? What is good for the dance? It's not about what's good for the person. And like, you know, everything at the expense of this, you know? Yeah. It's it's interesting. This makes me think of I th- again, I keep going back to her at the beginning of our conversation when we were kind of, we're kind of fascinated by the the many fictional depictions of how, of ba- ballet in our culture. I'm thinking of even Black Swan as, like <laughs> you said, probably the example that most people could refer to. And there's just something about ballet as an art form that lends itself to perfectionism and an obsession around perfectionism that I see as p- part, if not a core driver of these dynamics. Mm-hmm. And that it seems like either the dancers or the directors, like there's seems to be this chase for the perfect dance or ballet. Um, and unlike many other, I guess, art forms or disciplines in general, the human body is the instrument here. Mm-hmm. And that has led to a really distorted, it seems like, view on the, the humans relationship to their art and yeah. their relationship to ballet in particular. Totally. The Nutcracker is literally a peak around the world. And I believe we can do better when it comes to depicting different cultures. My dear friend and personal dance historian, Phil Chan and I are determined to do better. We started the final bow for Yellowface Pledge, urging dance companies around the world to eliminate Asian stereotypes from ballet. We are now a globally recognized initiative, and changes are happening. 
In 2019, the New York City Ballet's Marie was a biracial Trinidadian Filipino girl. I like to think Final Bow for Yellow Face's work paved the way for that to happen. Okay, so Georgina devotes a section to the Nutcracker, which I think is we both mentioned has been our singular experience in going to the ballet. <laughs> I think is that is probably true for a lot of our listeners who um, don't go to the ballet every weekend or aren't ballerinas. And what was, I found this chapter particularly illuminating and like a level of that, like behind the scenes into like, what does a ballerina think about the Nutcracker? Yes. You yes. know, I felt the exact and, same way. And there were some really interesting and fascinating and laugh out loud moments. Um, so I really enjoyed this section. I thought it was really like the kind of thing that I would expect from a memoir like this is like, what do you feel about that? Um, what, how did you feel about the Nutcracker? Did it change how you will think about the Nutcracker the next time you see it, maybe in 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. I thought I, I was really on the same page as you. Like I thought the section was so fascinating, like, mostly because it's focused on this cultural artifact that I and a lot of people are pretty familiar with and have context for. Like, the layperson, like, knows what the Nutcracker is, and they, like, know the basic, like, plot beats of it. But they probably don't know that its American popularity is, like, an aberration. Um, <laughs> and they probably don't know that, like, even though it brings a lot of people, like, holiday joy, it's kind of, like, an incredibly hellish experience for many of the artists involved. Um, it's like the opposite of Christmas cheer for them. Um, and yeah, I think that was that, it, it, that section really lends itself well to that sort of like tell all like behind the scenes, mm -hmm. like I'm going to take something that you think you know about and I'm going to tell you the truth about it. Yeah. It almost had this, the, I think one of the more interesting surprises is it's kind of the keep the lights on performance, I guess I would describe. Yes. It's like, it's the most popular by far the ballet understands that yes, it's not maybe their favorite or more, most artistically interesting uh, show to put on, but it's what essentially funds and fuels any other interest in ballet, uh, as well as the ability to really do what you want and explore new yeah. territory in there. Uh, it sounds particularly grueling of a season just to be doing this performance night in and night out. It sounds like everyone questions their uh, dedication to ballet at least once during the, ballet, uh, the Nutcracker season. Um, but the other element here that's, I think, really fascinating, and I think Georgina's perspective is particularly unique on, is um, some of the more harmful uh, iconography, essentially, that's present in certain mm -hmm. parts of the, the Nutcracker. Obviously, it's a very old uh, relic of art, but at the same time, particularly in... Um, We'll blank on the exact section. I think it's in the second act or the second half of where there's essentially just people from all over the world and different cultures are coming to this special land. <laughs> this is my spot on synopsis of the <laughs> Nutcracker, by the way. But there it's the is the Triwizard Tournament. The Triwizard Tournament. So you have Gryffindor, you have Slytherin. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and. There are some really harmful Asian stereotypes, um, really a mismatching, uh, an oversimplification uh, of Asian culture, and mm -hmm. uh, and there's some really harmful ideology. But Georgina has worked to, she created this organization called 
uh, the final bow for Yellowface, and she talks about this organization in the book on essentially replacing and removing those harmful images, um, which I think, you know, coming away talking about a discouraging analysis of like the world of ballet in our last little uh, section there, this was actually encouraging, I feel like, and something where someone is aware of their unique voice and, and acting, I think it could really helpful change. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, like I said, like fairly familiar with the Nutcracker, but I think that's more like the story, like a little girl named Clara, like she gets a Nutcracker, like there's a sugar plum fairy, like the, the mm. major beats of it, not necessarily like all the components of the ballet itself. Um, and so I was sort of like, whoa, like I did not realize that this was a part of this. Like I'm not a person who goes to see the Nutcracker every, every December. Um, so I actually ended up like Google image searching this and it's like really bad. Like, I guess it shouldn't be shocking, but it did really surprise me to like see images like that, even from like pretty recent productions. Um, yeah. so I was sort of like, oh my God, this is like, this, this is, I, I just like can't believe that this is still going on. Um, but that being said with like, once again, how like pervasive and I guess like normalized in that context it is like, I think it's really amazing that Georgina has been able to like organize and to speak out against this so publicly when ballet is already such a tough environment where the dancers like don't have a ton of agency to begin with and where there seemed to be a lot of intimidation tactics flying around. Like I think she had yeah. to be at least, she had to have been at least a little bit afraid that it would hurt her career, you know, and she did it anyway, Absolutely. which is like amazing. Yeah, no, I think this was one of those cases where it was so blatantly obvious, it sounds like to her, uh, that this was harmful and and unnecessary. Um, right, and who is like, that's my favorite part? Like, who's going to care if you... I mean, right. people and, are weird, but... Yeah, whatever. but I think this almost goes back to, to the idea that, like, who is uh, arbit arbitrating the standard of yeah. uh, ballet culture and... You know, we can. I think we can extend this questioning, like why is there yellow face in the Nutcracker, to why is there this expectation that a ballerina looks a certain way? Anyways, we will we will link to uh, Georgina's organization there. You can sign a pledge um, that uh, helps support the final bow for yellow face. I think it's a really simple action. I filled it out. Would recommend you to do the same. So um, that was that was a cool section to see. Cats. Not something I thought we were going to talk about. Cats the musical, not Cats the animal. Um, not something I thought we'd be talking about in a, a ballerina memoir, but it is uh, an important part of Georgina's life in that she gets to act uh, on Broadway as a cat. Um, how do you feel about Cats, Meredith? Oh, my God. Well, I don't, I'm not a Cats girl. You know, I mean, what, what else can I say? I'm not a Cats girl, period. The end. Um, the end of that sentence. I was like, I felt like Cats just came out of left field for me. I'm, I'm sure this is one of those things that, like, you would, if you were, like, a big fan of hers, you would have known this going in. Like, oh, yeah, she did Cats. That was, like, uh, one of her, one of the steps in her career. But, you know, I'm just, like, sitting, enjoying my my audiobook, and then all of a sudden she's in Cats. Um, I feel like there needs to be some sort of warning for that sort of thing. Like Cats is such a divisive cultural uh, yeah. touchstone that 
to throw that in a book without warning your audience. Yeah, is, feels we, yeah, we needed a content warning. Um, I thought Jason Derulo was gonna like jump out at me um, and cat me yeah. up, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> horrifying. No, but I, I think that it's regardless of how I feel about cats, it seemed like that was a really really positive experience for her and gave her. Um, just like insight into different ways that creative fields could be run. And like the fact that the culture at NYCB was like not the only way to do things. And like the only way to run a professional, like artistic company. Um, And I think that it was truly like a big, it seemed like it was a really actually big moment in her, like in her journey and like, especially in her journey of, unraveling everything that had kind of been done to her yeah no i think that experience and on broadway and one other uh outside of nycb i think she did a um i mean a pretty provocative performance completely in the nude um with her partner and she describes Mm -hmm. in depth about the rehearsal process and the process of becoming more comfortable with the idea of that sort of dance has a funny anecdote about a janitor accidentally walking in mm-hmm. um, <laughs> being very confused. But ironically, it was these experiences with the right coaches and the people who genuinely cared about the people as well as the art mm-hmm. on stage that seemed to, like you said, be eye-opening um, and were really um, uh, presented an alternate picture of things that, even though they, you know, cats is a pretty intense <laughs> operation and obviously dancing in the nude in front of strangers is something that I didn't have on my bucket list. Um, but those two experiences seem to have been really beneficial for Georgina and um, I'm happy we got to hear about them. Yeah. And I think they also, it, it wasn't just that it showed her a, a different way that like an environment could be run, but, or like a, a different kind of organizational culture, but it also felt like that sort of element of having a director or having someone that you're working with who like genuinely cares about your, your headspace and like your mental health and like your comfort is makes you better creatively. Like it opens up windows creatively. It's not like it, it's not the way things are in ballet where it's like, anything like you will do anything for the ballet how you're feeling doesn't matter that's secondary the primary thing is like how this art is taking form it's like well that's actually not the best way to get the best out of me um and like if you treat me like a human i'm gonna work better yeah well this is it reminds me of the movie whiplash um by damien chazelle yeah so he you're rushing directed- you're dragging you're rushing you're dragging, you're dragging. <laughs> One of my favorite movies, uh, one of my favorite J.K. Simmons's performances, if you like the idea of jazz, but it actually is kind of a similar take on like the behind the scenes of jazz culture mm-hmm. and like big bands and elite performing art schools. And there seems to be the belief in certain people that in demanding perfection and excellence and almost creating a toxic work environment, you're going to get the best out of people. Right, like fear and, as a motivating factor, essentially, yeah. or like devaluing someone as a motivating factor. Yeah, and I've heard of even some professional athletes talking about like a tough, loving coach being actually motivating for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I think to use that as an excuse to treat people poorly, especially when they have not expressed a desire to be treated that way right. as a way to get coached and embedded, um, maybe not. 
That's my take. Maybe not be like that. Hot takes with Caleb. Yes. <laughs> we need a little theme song for hot yeah. takes with Caleb in a little second. We'll have here. like a little hot takes minute. Hot takes corner. Yeah. Hot takes with Caleb. And uh, my hot take for this week is if you have a choice between being mean and being nice, be nice. And my hot take is um, liking Christmas is alt and edgy. And that has been Hot Takes, a In Their Voice production by Caleb and Meredith. Ballet may be an ephemeral experience, but to be able to give myself over to this special gift has been an honor. I will always be grateful for what my inner rogue ballerina has encouraged me to become. I can't imagine much else that will scare me or exhilarate me as much. But whatever is next, I'll jump right into it with all of my body and soul. Ballet has taught me that's the only way to face the uncertainty of life. And that might be the best lesson I've learned. All right, so my final question then is takeaways and a question around what are you taking away from this audiobook? That's how we're ending every episode at this point and that's how we're going to end our book club. So what are you taking away, Meredith? Yeah, um, I have a, a sad one and a, and a not sad one. Um, a sad one and a happy one. Um, All right, let's start with the sad so, one. So yeah, we'll do the sad one first. Um, so... One thing, I've already talked about this a bit, so forgive me, um, but I feel like this book for me really reinforced a belief that I already have about how like top-down organizational culture can be. Like obviously culture on a macro level can flow in a lot of different directions and we like produce it and it produces us. Um, but sometimes, especially organizationally, it can feel really downstream. And you know, you have a few people in power who have decided that this is the way things are and this is the way they should be. And that power allows them to make it so pervasive and so normalized that members of that organization aren't even like aware of the extent of their own unhappiness. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I'm not really saying anything groundbreaking. This is like false consciousness 101, but it can be really powerful to see it play out on a personal level. Like when Georgina yes. does Cats and then she gets back from Broadway, everyone at the ballet is like, why are you doing this? You're like, you're a traitor. But she has a great experience, and it's like she wakes up. She's She literally says, like, this was an eye-opening experience. Um, like, mm. I, I didn't know that a career in the arts could look like this. And I don't even think that Broadway is exactly, like, known as a wildly professional and supportive environment. Um, <laughs> right. But it's so starkly contrasted to how negative things were at NYCB that she's like, wow, positive reinforcement could actually like help my creative process. Like who knew? Um, and it took her completely stepping out of that environment and seeing an alternative to make her realize that things could actually look differently and that the way that they looked at NYCB was actually like pretty terrible. Um, so that's one thing, but then nice, a nicer thing. Um, I've definitely touched on Georgina's like rogue ballerina persona and I've touched on how candid she can be. And I think that in tandem, those things really work to give us 
a fuller picture of Georgina, not just as an artist, but, uh, and as a professional, but as a person, like Mm -hmm. she has a really strong voice and a really particular cadence and even vocabulary. And her narration feels committed to authenticity in a way that leaves you with a strong sense of like what it would be like to be around her, what it would be like to be her friend even. Um, and I think that contrasts with some of the other memoirs we've listened to, like you come away feeling like you know her more Mm -hmm. than I felt like I knew Alicia Keys or Mikhail Jolay, for example, and like what it would be like just to hang out with them. So that's definitely a nice thing I'm taking away here is a sense of having met someone and spent time with them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I found the listening experience here to be very additive. And I think of the, like you said, of the audiobooks we've listened to, I've really enjoyed all of the voices and the, the performances, but this one felt the most conversational and it felt like it was almost a disservice to read it in, uh, on paper. <laughs> like the, mm-hmm. I wanted to he- hearing Georgina tell these stories was like getting the tea in a way that wouldn't have been, I don't think the case as much in like reading it. Um, totally. Physically. I, Apparently in her first draft of the book, uh, she it was like a very clean cut narrative. There was none of the tea, none of the drama, none of the mention of these like um, harmful individuals at NYCB. And she finished it and felt like it wasn't enough that like it wasn't authentic uh, mm-hmm. ultimately. And I'm so glad she didn't uh, move forward with that version of the book, because I think this version is much more important to be out there. I mm-hmm. think it represents um a fuller picture of who Georgina is and how I think dancers like Georgina in future generations, hopefully because of books like this will experience less of the racism, the sexism, um, the ableism that was present at NYCB. And I'm, I'm sure is pervasive in ballet culture at large. And so while there is clearly much work to be done, um, based on uh, a lot of the more systemic issues at play here. Uh, There is some room for hope, I think, going forward. And I think it takes people, like you were saying, in order to topple top-down hierarchical toxicity, you have to speak up, even when it costs you something. And so I recognize that was really brave of Georgina to do that. And it's... Uh, encouraging that there hopefully is better a better future for people who still want to dance at this extremely artistic and high athletic level Thanks so much for listening to In Their Voice. If you enjoyed this conversation, follow our book club at chirpbooks.com slash in their voice, where we'll be posting new book club picks and conversations every month. And if you want to learn more about chirp book clubs, go to chirpbooks.com slash book clubs. <laughs>